The Gonski panel was set up in April 2010. It worked for 20 months and reported in December 2011. The immediate purpose was to recommend the government on new funding arrangements for schools for the period beyond 2013, when existing funding legislation was due to expire, as it now has. In 2010, the 2009 PISA results had shocked the nation. Not only was it clear that our international performance was declining in both absolute terms and in relative terms in comparison with other countries, but there had developed since the year 2000 a much stronger correlation between underperformance and aggregated social disadvantage than in any other comparable country, and a gap between our highest and lowest performing schools greater than the average for the 34 OECD countries. The 2012 PISA results have since shown that the position has worsened. We have the most socially segregated education system in the Western world. We suffer the consequences of what Dean Ashington has recently called that uniquely Australian mistake, the three-sector system of government, Catholic and independent schools. The Education Minister, Julia Gillard, understood the causal relationship between aggregated social disadvantage and our deteriorating national performance and asked us to develop a funding system which is, quote, transparent, financially sustainable and effective in promoting excellent educational outcomes for all Australian students. The Shadow Minister, Christopher Pine, who I think almost certainly understood that relationship, nevertheless, for reasons I will come to, called instead in 2010 for a review of curriculum and for greater attention to teacher quality. He implied that the problem was simply that students in many government schools were being taught an unchallenging curriculum by poor teachers and that this explained our poor national performance. Fix the curriculum and fix the teachers and we'll be back there at the top with Finland and Singapore. Now it's worth briefly reminding you who the who were the authors of the Gonski Report. David Gonski, merchant banker, now or formerly chair of the Board of Trustees of Sydney Grammar, Chancellor of the University of New South Wales, Chairman of the Australian Stock Exchange, Chairman of the ANZ Bank, Chairman of Coca-Cola Amatel, and Chairman of the Australian Council for the Arts, amongst other things, is hardly a member of the socialist left. Catherine Greiner, Chairman of the Board of Loretto Convent in Kirribilli, former Sydney City Councillor, a director of several private companies and not-for-profit organisations, heavily involved in the arts and children with disabilities, is New South Wales Liberal Royalty. Peter Tannock, knighted by Pope Benedict in 2008, is a former Chairman of the Schools Commission, Director of Catholic Education in Western Australia, Chair of the National Catholic Education Commission, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Notre Dame, Australia, and generally acknowledged to be the architect of Australian Catholic education in its current form. Bill Scales is 
Chancellor of Swinburne University and has been recently appointed by Malcolm Turnbull to head the audit of the National Broadband Network. His present and past appointments include President of the Business Higher Education Roundtable, Chair of the Port of Melbourne Authority, Secretary of the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, Director of Telstra and Director of many other public companies. Carmen Lawrence is a former Western Australian Premier, former Federal Education Minister and former President of the Australian Labor Party. She is a strong advocate for public education. As for me, as a former public servant in Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales and England, I'm the only one of the six to have earned the pejorative title Educrat, conferred by that uh, apparently independent reviewer of curriculum, Dr Kevin Donnelly, in his 1997 polemic, Dumbing Down, in which I'm accused of holding views that are the antithesis of everything I have ever stood for in education. I believe I'm also the only member of the panel to have spent most of their schooling in public schools. My point is that this was a broadly braced panel, pretty conservative in its outlook, independent rather than representative, of advanced years, and the majority with associations with the non-government schooling sector. It did not bear the stamp of hand-picked stooges of the Labor Party. We read more than 7,000 submissions, met with 71 key education groups, many of them several times, contracted out several major research projects, visited 39 hand-picked schools in all states, and worked with a very skilled secretariat, and we reached unanimous agreement. There are no caveats or dissenting reports attached to Gonski. Six people from an extraordinary range of different backgrounds signed up to the most far-reaching education report since Carmel. Now, what is the essence of Gonski in a nutshell? To explain that, I begin with economics the question of whether education is a public good or a positional good. A public good is something that is universally available, although it might have a cost. It is of benefit to all of us, and the benefit to each of us does not reduce the availability of the benefit to others. Fresh air, uh, traffic signs, street lighting are common examples of a public good. Education is a public good. Education is universally available in government and non-government schools. There is cost to the taxpayer and in many schools to the parent in teaching children to read. It's of benefit to all of us. And teaching one child to read does not reduce the capacity of another child also to learn to read. A positional good is inherently scarce. It's a service or product with value arising from the fact that it's not available to everyone so that not all can benefit from it. Its possession confers status and preferment on the possessor. The economists' usual examples are luxury cars and houses, ocean cruises, 
and so on. Now an education credential, a senior secondary school certificate, a higher school certificate, a TAFE certificate, a degree, a graduate diploma, a higher degree, is a positional good. By definition, high achievement in education is relative to the lower achievement of others. High educational outcomes confer status and preferment on the possessor. Bluntly, the value of a person's achievement in education depends upon the educational achievement of the person ahead of him in the queue for a job. Now, stripped down to the chassis, Gonski seeks to do two things. To ensure that education as a public good genuinely gives every child the support that he or she individually needs and to ensure that educational achievement as a positional good is available on the basis of talent and hard work alone rather than purchased by those in a position of wealth and privilege. It's important to understand that Gonski is a fundamental reimagining of Australian education, not simply a proposal for allocating resources to schools. To explain the first of those objectives, to make education a genuine public good, I begin with the term teacher quality. We do not talk of doctor quality or dentist quality. We talk of the quality of health care or the quality of oral health. And that quality varies greatly from place to place. Healthcare in Australia is not everywhere of the same quality. The variation is not explained by the quality of the medical staff, but by their number, the availability of specialist diagnosis and treatment, and the availability of technical and ancillary support. Low quality healthcare in rural and remote Australia is explained by inadequate funding for the task at hand not by the relative incompetence of the available doctors and nurses. Now it's the same with teaching. We should not talk about teacher quality, but about teaching quality or the quality of education. The teachers in our most disadvantaged schools are at least as good as those in our most advantaged schools. The issue is not their competence, skill or commitment. The issue is that their number, resources and support are unequal to the task. At a national and state level, there is no correlation between teacher quality and school performance in Australia. There are some ineffective teachers as there are incompetent doctors, but they can be found in schools both effective and ineffective and there are procedures for dealing with them. But there is real variation in the quality of education from school to school, and it is that which Gonski seeks to address. The schools at the lower end of both the scale of aggregated social disadvantage and the scale of educational performance are the emergency wards of Australian education. 
In a hospital emergency ward, there's a battery of medical specialists and intervention techniques targeted at the recovery of the individual. A school I know well here in Sydney, with more than 90% of its intake being children with a language background other than English, from families from 35 different language groups, less than three years in the country and unlikely to stay more than three years in the school, is an emergency ward in the same real sense. So too as a small rural school I've visited many times, taking children from the long-term unemployed, some suffering from fetal alcohol syndrome, some of whom have never been read to or even held a book. Now we haven't got that image across firmly in the public mind. Children entering such schools require immediate diagnosis of need and immediate intensive care if they are to be saved. They need smaller class sizes, the ready availability of tier two and tier three interventions delivered by fully qualified personnel, speech therapists, counsellors, school family liaison officers, including interpreters, and a range of other support. Hospitals save lives, schools create and save futures. If children don't get the support they need when they're needed, they are deprived of education as a public good. And instead, they're consigned to the bin of underachievement and we fail as a nation to realise our potential stock of human capital. And that support requires money. You cannot deliver education as a genuine public good without adequate public funding. That's what Gonski seeks to achieve. Now over the past 40 years, and particularly since the Howard government, successive governments have allocated funding to the three sectors after consultation with state governments, independent school organisations, church leaders, teacher unions and others. It's never been on the basis of the detailed assessment of the needs of individual schools. It's been essentially a political settlement, sector-based and needs blind. There's then been a series of post hoc equity programs designed to address specific purposes, the most recent of which was the new partnerships funding. These programs have been but partially effective and time limited. Now the Gonski model turns this all on its head. It's sector blind and needs based. It seeks to assess the resource requirements of each individual school according to need. It proposes a base loading for all schools and loadings for the different elements of aggregated social disadvantage. It brings equity funding into the mainstream. What is eventually spent in each sector is to be the sum of the needs of the schools in that sector, not the result of a political settlement. 
Now, the Labor government, not Gonski, said no school should lose a dollar. And to satisfy that requirement, we included in the model a base grant for all schools. But there is no doubt that the model is redistributive and that it creates a more even playing field across the three sectors. Christopher Pine understood that sooner than most people in politics. And unlike some people in the coalition parties, he's utterly opposed to it. The Abbott government might claim the nation cannot afford an increase in education funding. What Pine is really opposed to is the redistribution of whatever funding might be available according to measured need. So what's at risk if we fail on this first objective is the full realisation of education as a public good. The gap between the top and bottom 20% of year nine students in reading performance is currently equivalent to five years of schooling. One in five of our year nine students is reading at mid-primary level. That is not the result of insufficient independence for government schools and their principals. It's not the result of poor teaching. It is not the result of a cultural left curriculum. It is not the result of failing to make Thomas Hardy compulsory in year eight. It is the direct result of sector-based needs-blind school funding. If we fail to reduce that gap, we'll continue to have knowledge and skill never created, human capital never realised. It is as if a rich vein of some precious metal, which if extracted would generate far more wealth for the country than the cost of its extraction, was nevertheless left undisturbed in the ground. The second Gonski objective is one of equal opportunity to ensure that educational achievement as a positional good is earned on the basis of talent and hard work alone rather than purchased by those in a position of wealth and privilege. The strategic targeting of resources according to need, which is specifically what Gonski calls for, will do much more than reduce the impact of disadvantage on educational outcomes. The flip side is that it will also reduce the impact of advantage and privilege on educational outcomes. If school performance is neither advantaged nor disadvantaged by parental income, ethnic background, religion, school size and location, or whether a student attends an independent Catholic or public school, success at school will be determined essentially by the student's ability, application and hard work. In other words, Gonski will create a genuine meritocracy. And that's where Minister Pine, although by no means all other members of his party, has particular difficulty with Gonski. Mr Pine is anchored in the era of Dr Kemp, the minister in the Howard government, who presided over increased funding for non-government schools 
in order to underwrite financially the exercise of choice between government and non-government schools by parents. He claimed that this would mean better education by using, and I quote, the dynamics of consumer opportunity and provider competition to drive service quality. Now, as many of us predicted at the time, this has not resulted in reduced fees and greater accessibility to the non-government sector, but has widened the gulf between the rich and the poor. It has sucked the oxygen from any real competition between schools in different sectors. If choice is important, it is surely in the national interest that the grounds for such choice should not be that the public schools have been starved of the funds necessary to support education as a public good. And as the international data clearly demonstrate, Australia's educational performance has deteriorated sharply since that time. The publicly funded user choice model introduced by Dr Kemp was intended to encourage increasing numbers of parents to pay for their children's education. To do so, non-government schools had to be perceived as manifestly better than state schools. If parents are to invest in their child's education, they want to see a return on the investment. And the return they want is educational achievement as a positional good to increase their child's chances for selection into law, medicine or engineering in the university of their choice. At present, the hard-working and talented children of the privilege have a somewhat better prospect of access to the very highest levels of educational achievement than the similarly hard-working and talented children of the socially disadvantaged. Gonski will change all that. All won't have prizes. This is about equality of opportunity, not equality of outcomes, but those who do receive prizes will do so on the basis of hard work, ability and application alone. Is Mr Pine up for that? A meritocracy? A funding system that devalues the benefits of private schooling? One that creates a more even playing field? Of course not. As Jim McMorrow's paper shows, the die is already cast. The December 2013 mid-year eco economic and fiscal outlook statement shows that funding for government schools in 2000 and 16 to 17 is $90 million lower than projected in the 2013 Labor budget, and that for non-government schools is $34 million higher, and that assumes no change in enrolments. So what's at risk is that educational attainment will continue to be a positional good available more to the privileged than the disadvantaged. At risk is the Gonski vision of a fair go for all young Australians, so that in due course and over, over time, a hard-working, talented young girl, for example, will come to have the same real prospect of winning a place in the university in course of her choice 
regardless of family circumstances and background, and regardless of the school she attends. Mount Austin High School in Wagga, Abbots Lee, Sydney Girls High School, Loretto Convent, or Rooty Hill High School. And further, of course, our national performance will continue to stagnate and decline, regardless of any tinkering with the curriculum. It is important to remember that terms and sentiments such as meritocracy, a fair go for all young Australians, maximising our human capital and creating a clever country, resonate well with many members of the Liberal and National parties, including people in parliaments around the country. Gonski has strong national support from parents, teachers and universities, from charities, church-based and otherwise, from some non-government school interests, including influential elements within Catholic education, from important elements within state governments and opposition parties, from national opinion leaders, and of course from the AEU. This is formidable opposition based on strong grounds, morally, educationally, and in terms of our national economy. Minister Pine has yet shown no sign of wanting to attack it head on. Rather, he's launched a series of diversionary and flanking attacks under the banner of the Students First program and its four pillars of teacher quality, school autonomy, parental engagement and a robust curriculum. Pine says that funding should never be an end in itself. Whoever proposed that it should be. The final chapter in the Gonski report, Building Momentum for Change, focuses on the need to invest the increased and or redistributed Gonski funds in a great teaching profession, in empowered schools and leadership, in developing and sustaining innovation, in parent and community engagement, and in quality assurance. Similarly, the Gonski panel would support the proposals from the Grattan Institute on turning schools around, but the price of doing so is increasing or redistributing the available funds so that these priorities can be met. As I've argued, our poor international performance and steep social gradient cannot be explained away by poor teacher quality, the first of Mr Pine's four pillars. If every teacher in New South Wales were to obtain a master's degree within the next three years, there might be some improvement in performance across the range, including at the top and the bottom. But the gap between Mount Austin High School and Abbots Lee will never be reduced without the strategic redistribution of funding according to measured need. Improved teacher quality, or as I would prefer to describe it, improvement in the quality of education, costs money. It is not an alternative to Gonski. Gonski is an essential precondition. As the research has shown, the second pillar, school autonomy, is an irrelevant distraction. Every government that is maintained school in England which includes faith-based schools, 
has the autonomy of the independent public schools in Western Australia, governing boards which can hire and fire head teachers and staff, determine the salaries and promotions, and so on. Yet school performance varies enormously from school to school and from region to region. It's the quality of the whole school instructional leadership of the principal, which is the important thing, not their capacity to hire staff or borrow money for capital works. And building high quality instructional leadership across a school system costs money. It is also not an alternative to Gonski. Gonski is the prerequisite. The third pillar, parental engagement, is critical to school improvement. But building effective engagement, for example, with newly arrived communities from different language and cultural backgrounds demands very substantial resourcing. Improved parental engagement is not a substitute for Gonski. It requires Gonski if it is to be effective. And the fourth pillar, a robust curriculum, is code for the charge that our poor international performance is the result of a cultural left national curriculum. No one I know would be opposed to ongoing monitoring and review of the curriculum by the proper authority, which is the Ministerial Council, not the Commonwealth Minister, and by independent reviewers. But this is not what we've got. As the year develops, criticism of the national curriculum will be drip-fed by the Donnelly Wiltshire Review into the shock jocks of the media week by week and subject by subject. Defenders of the national curriculum will be branded cultural left and further demonised. Minister Pine will focus on an allegedly content-free, left-wing and insufficiently anglophile curriculum as the cause of our national decline. Education will be seen as the task of filling an empty vessel rather than the Socratic vision of lighting a flame. The risk is that advocates of Gonski will be distracted by this and other diversionary attacks, which are a deliberate provocation, and lose sight of the fact that these issues are perennial, peripheral, and subsidiary. Gonski is of an entirely different order. It is an opportunity that has never come before, and if lost, will not come again for many years. In short, Pine's four pillars are no substitute for Gonski, unless the student's first agenda is built on sector-blind, needs-based funding. It won't work. Now, the federal opposition is also failing to come up to the mark. It's failing to put political pressure on the government to achieve the Gonski reform within the current term of office. It's not rammed home to the Australian public the reason why six-year rather than four-year Gonski funding is critical. That funding only to 2016-17 will leave the lower 20% of public schools, the emergency wards, still well below the Gonski school resourcing 
standard. The implementation of Gonski over the six-year period requires an additional 15 billion, 10 billion from the Commonwealth and 5 billion from the states. Yet although the Abbott government now says that it will honour the spirit and the letter of its assurances on needs-based funding, the total it will provide in the four years to 2016-17 is only 2.8 billion. There's a shortfall of 7.2 billion to be met in the fifth and sixth years. Further, there's no evidence that the Labour opposition has learned from the mistakes it made in government. In the long winter of 21 months between December 2011, when we submitted our report, and the election in September 2013. It set aside what the Gonski panel regarded as an essential recommendation to establish a national schools resourcing body similar to a schools commission, responsible to all education ministers to determine in a nationally consistent way the school resourcing standard, the minimum public contribution, the loadings, and the indexation factor. Instead, the Labor government sought to negotiate those matters unilaterally and separately with the state authorities, non-government school organisations, church leaders and unions, after we'd consulted with them all for more than 18 months, thus repeating the pattern of the past 40 years. It set aside the recommendations on disabilities funding and the coordination of capital works funding across state and territories. It announced that the required funding would come from tertiary education. And in the final few weeks of government, it touted Gonski around the country in an unholy scramble to entice states to sign up to deals in which the fundamental principles were entirely secondary. Six months after the election, we have no roadmap from a party that commissioned the most important education report since the Carmel report and failed in the politics of its delivery. The most effective political questioning of the Abbott government's education policies has been coming from the New South Wales government, not from the federal opposition. And yet, the solution to our national problem is still readily within our grasp. We know that investment in the quality of education can turn around poor national performance in a relatively short space of time. In 2009, Poland was a basket case, although the capital, Warsaw, was up there with Finland. The education authorities in Warsaw had focused on investing in improvements in classroom practice. That's now spread to the rest of the country and Poland is now near the top of the PISA league table. Similarly, Canada is ahead of Australia in performance and has a flatter social gradient. But the province of Ontario is well ahead of the others because of its greater investment in teachers and pedagogy. We can turn around the decline in Australia's educational performance at least as rapidly 
as it has occurred, but only by implementing Gonski. There is no other way. If we lose Gonski, we will lose public education. We will lose what every teacher in public schools in this state has worked for and valued. The purpose of education will again be to sort the wheat from the chaff. Generations of children will continue to be lost. Australia will be diminished. I compliment you and the New South Wales Teachers Federation on having nailed your colours to the mast. <laughs>